Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. Loving the other can mean many things. For a psychologist, it can imply two contrasting personalities coming together in a complementary and constructive relationship. It can also be construed as avoiding excessive self-love. The related phrase, other love, has in the hetero-orthodox lexicon been used to refer to gay love. But this podcast is not primarily about sexuality, sexual orientation or gender, all of which we've discussed before. Rather, it's about coming to terms with difference and understanding the other in such a profound way that it can become love and even bring about peace. But let's begin at the beginning. Here's Alex Kogan reflecting on the sheer mystery of human love in The Naked Scientist Show, What is Love? I think my best hack at the answer would be to say that it's quite a few motivations, it's emotions, it's behavior. Uh, I would say love is some of the best stuff in your life and some of the worst stuff in your life. And so it's got a lot of complexities. When we think about different types of love, we've got everything from friendship love to love of a romantic partner to love of cheesecake. And that makes studying love extremely difficult. And so as a this new era of studying love from a neuroscience and genetic perspective starts to really emerge. We're trying to work out all these d- details and complexities. Leaving aside cheesecake, with me to discuss loving the other are Dr. Sam Victor, a Wolf Institute PhD alumnus who's an anthropologist by training and has researched into attitudes towards difference in a predominantly white evangelical church in Nashville, Tennessee. And joining him is Ruby Hajish Nayef, a graduate of the American University of Beirut, who is researching relationships between Jewish, Israeli and Palestinian women here at the Wolf Institute. Let's start with you, Ruby, and welcome to you both. You're studying the interaction of Jewish and Muslim women's groups in Israel. Is that an example of getting to know and love the other? In a way, it is. So uh, currently, I'm doing a research on women organization that specifically work with both Jewish and Palestinian women. And um, I remember I had uh, this call with a prominent uh, Israeli feminist, and I was asking her of telling me a success story. And she told me that uh, for her, she has been doing work for the last 30 years, but the a success story that she has is a space where there's like four or five NGOs, Israeli and Palestinian NGOs, like sharing the same space, uh, working together, I don't know, sharing their coffee together. And she said beyond everything for her, even this everyday act and interaction is a success story where they can laugh together Uh, have like normal conversation. I think it's important to acknowledge these kind of uh, everyday interaction. Are those everyday interactions more effective between women, do you think? Uh, Or between men and women? I mean, you know, you're focusing on women. Why is that and what difference does that make? I'm focusing specifically on women organization and women because 
I really believe that studying these women organizations can give us a fresh perspective and a new approach to peace building in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because like it has been proven that traditional like peace building approaches has failed so far so that's why I'm interested to look how these women organizations give us another approach And boy, and maybe that's inappropriate, listeners, do we need that sort of new approach to what's going on out there. Now, Sam, you've dealt with tricky areas yourself. Um, I suspect an evangelical church in Nashville, the mostly white congregation engaging with the other. What does being open to diversity really mean? Yeah, so for them, um, what I gathered, especially when it comes to interacting with religious others, spontaneity um, and taking risks was something that people really foregrounded. Um, And that comes a lot from their own background of coming from a religious tradition in which it was very important that they know very precisely what it is that they're supposed to do in their faith, um, how they're supposed to obey God and what that means, and then sort of by extension what that means that, that other people must do as well. And so for them, um, acting with the heart and not the mind was something that people often spoke of. So one of the main um, venues where people would, would try to enact these sort of new virtues that they're trying to cultivate um, was in uh, anti-Islamophobia activism, which is something that one might not expect coming from this type of congregation, sort of, you know, uh, white, wealthy suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, conservative evangelical. Um, But for the people that participated in that, um, one of the main components of it was meeting with people for dinners um, and having shared meals in people's homes. And although this was, you know, envisioned as sort of a venue in which somebody might be spontaneous or to take the risk to sit down across from the other that they would almost be certain to know that they have profound disagreements with. Uh, they were still pretty structured events. People they had uh, people that were trained in conflict management that would come and, and facilitate the dinners and sort of make sure that if things went in a particular sort of unproductive direction, sort of too much hinging on those intellectual concerns, they would sort of draw things back to the heart and to getting to know people on an individual level. What happens when there are those tensions, Ruby? Because, you know, there's the danger, isn't there, of what can be called, um, I don't know, samosa dialogue, right? Having a bagel or samosa or something that, you know, that's all the openness is. Surely what you're both talking about is something that is an enabler, something that leads you into a more serious conversation, I agree is like this everyday interaction does not mean that there's not like tension. And I think the key to dealing with this tension, how I understood from the woman is having difficult conversation and just reflecting on biases, learning and also unlearning. This is something they told me, like they're always constantly unlearning stuff they know. And just, I think, having difficult conversation. Unlearning, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that really resonates with what I was observing and and the things that I spoke about with my interlocutors in the field, too. The idea that um, a lot of loving the other has to do with getting to and understanding the other and knowing the other has to do with knowing oneself as well a lot. Um, And not really in a kind of a solipsistic way, but in, in a way of understanding where people are coming from, understanding the limits of one's own understanding. I think there was always kind of this recursive part of things. People would always come back to themselves and had a lot of self-work to do. It sounds like the context is pretty important here. In um, both your stories, you're talking about 
areas or environments that are hospitable. There's a sense of hospitality, of welcoming the other. And I'm thinking, Ruby, your own background, you, you were brought up in Syria, you know, you experienced the trauma or your family did of the civil war and you went to Lebanon and studied there, which had its own trauma. You're dealing with conversations between Jewish, Israelis and Palestinian women, which is traumatic itself. And, and that's really tricky, right? I mean, how did you deal with some of the really difficult aspects of it? My background played a huge role because I was brought in Syria and studied in Lebanon. After Lebanon, I lived in Germany, which gave me two very different perspectives. And I feel like I was privileged to have different kind of perspective, education. So I think these two different backgrounds uh, allowed me to have like empathy as well as like the knowledge and the skills to deal with this kind of situation. And I think it's also about being open that I always, when I go to an interview or speak with an Israeli woman activist or a Palestinian, I'm always like, this is my background. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. So it's also being honest and transparent. Yes, I think there's a huge amount to that, that honesty. And I know from my own experience in different conversations, if there's a sense that you're being not necessarily dishonest, but maybe deceiving oneself, you know, that it makes it harder to really build up that relationship with the other, who, whoever the other is. But what tactics did you learn? What differences were there between your context in, in, in studying in Germany uh, and studying in Beirut in terms of loving the other, in terms of fostering this understanding between, you know, fundamental divides? First of all, learning like language play a huge role. Communication styles also play a huge role role also like cultural context where something would be very normal or like open for one group would be very different so just being aware of the cultural context but it's also I would say in the case of the like working with Palestinian and Israeli women I would feel that the context is very similar (laughs) unlike what a lot would think that's like my interaction with both like women or group of women because Every group have a very diverse woman from different backgrounds, but I would say the context is very similar. So I would say that uh, the question of, of partisanship and politics is something that is can, can be kind of overbearing. And in Nashville, the whole of my fieldwork took place during the Trump presidency, for example. And so this was a time in which anytime somebody wanted to embrace something having to do with inclusion or acceptance or something of this nature, they would sort of always be forced into one camp or another. Um, And this was something that I think was really frustrating to people, people wanting to figure out a middle way through this. One thing that I'm wondering is, is there any talk about indifference being something that helps people to understand each other or to to live with each other. This idea that sometimes in thinking about loving the other, right, which is very positive, sort of going towards the other, um, whether or not sometimes there's this idea of maybe pragmatic indifference or or, or that, and not not in a whole philosophy of how to deal with others, but in sometimes in these tense situations, people just have to figure out ways to tolerate each other, I suppose, in some sense. 
I think in the context I'm working with like the opposite <laughs> like they care too much there's too much emotion action because the women I'm working with are like activists and they most of them have been like working in this field for the past 30 20 years so I think for them like there's no space for indifference it's more about like empathy even being angry happy emotional passionate but for them i don't think there's any space for indifference but it's a very interesting question like do you see that in your context yes it is something that comes up again coming back to to context is is really important because for example the folks that i'm studying are in a very privileged position in society um and so for them they are sort of part of the quote unquote majority culture in their context and sort of in the so-called bible belt of the united states where the predominant religion and 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 sort of public culture is conservative evangelicalism uh white specifically and so the idea that people can be indifferent as a response to some of these questions and challenges um is one that there are many people at least in the congregation that I was studying that are trying to call their peers out of this sense that they can just sort of think about inclusion uh and that they actually have to make some actions and and to do some things and and they can't just sort of sit idly by even if their beliefs about it might be virtuous in some sense it, it's that there's this sense that that's not quite enough words are cheap aren't they sam yeah this is naked reflections with me ed kessler my guests are sam victor and ruby haji nayef we're discussing loving the other Let's go back to our naked scientist witness Alex Kogan still trying to hack his way out of the rough and define human love. When we look at a romantic partner for example as compared to a stranger we do see more activation in the dopaminergic uh, component of the brain where a lot of the reward aspects are processed. So we know that aspect. But beyond that I think we're still trying to learn some of the details because of the methodological and design challenges of capturing something as loose and complex as love. Ruby just before the break you you touched on the need or lack of need for indifference and you were saying actually one of our problems is too much um engagement and and Sam was saying what well, actually indifference can be can be quite a a good thing yeah actually i like last term i took this course which was about uh, jewish and uh, muslim relation in middle east and medieval period and myself i was really surprised about what i learned about the different um interaction between Jewish and Muslim in Egypt in Syria and Iraq and I growing up I always uh, remember the story of my dad telling us like in old Damascus there's this like Jewish neighborhood my grandfather his father used to take him there to buy shoes because it was no- known there's like this uh, Jewish uh, shoes maker that is well known in old Damascus but then in that course I took last term I learned about like also coming back to the everyday interaction where jewish and muslim lift or coexist and of course that can happen when you actually have the physical encounter you know you have the ordinary relations on the street it gets more complicated if you're living in say nashville tennessee where there are probably very few muslims sam um i don't know but what happens when you you're in in a, in a situation where you don't meet the other whether it's you know meeting muslims or jews or or christians vice versa i mean there there are some fundamental stereotypes that come out of our traditions and even our scriptures at times 
Yes, I think that especially in in the context that I was studying in, people can go through their day-to-day lives without encountering that much difference at all. Um, And so it becomes something that people have to intentionally seek out. I mean, in terms of day-to-day interactions, people might, especially now, Nashville is becoming a much more diverse city, sort of following a path of a lot of other mid-sized cities. So interactions with people at the supermarket or something like this might be a bit more frequent than they used to be. But seeking out those situations um, is something that people are having to do. And then in a sort of evangelical Christian context, that's not something that people haven't done before. It's just that it tends to be framed in a missionary type of posture, which is not necessarily conducive to understanding or loving the other. It's, it's a particular kind of interaction. And I think that because that's the script with which a lot of people do interact with the other and sort of have that intentional interaction, they're trying to figure out ways to do it other than that, um, while still maintaining um, kinds of evangelistic virtues that they might have. So. It sounds like it echoes what uh, Ruby was saying in terms of unlearning, you know, because the old-fashioned missionary approach was preaching the gospel and bringing people in in, in, in a pretty assertive way, sometimes a violent way, um, and it's about unlearning that what mission actually means. Yes, and I think changing a relational posture, too, is a big part of that, that, that people are they're trying to so in these interfaith dinners that I was describing before— Part of the ways that people would prepare and then be prepared by their peers to go into that type of situation was to understand themselves as going not to teach other people about something, um, not to impart knowledge on others in sort of that missionary type of way, but to go expecting to learn something um, and also expecting to, to unlearn something necessarily through that process. What do we do when we get to hostility, Ruby? Because we're, you know, we're sitting here in a beautiful Cambridge studio. We're very civilized, having a conversation. We're doing it in, uh, you'll be pleased to know, Sam, peace and harmony. But seriously, what do you do? uh, What do we do when we face that hostility in an environment? And I'm sure you have examples of that. Could you reflect on how to how to handle that? I think it's about revisiting a power relationship. Mm-hmm. So uh, as you said, like, it's easy when we're sitting in a peaceful way, having conversation. But when there's like conflicts and like really complicated political relation, it's really hard to just like have simply a conversation. So it's come back to like power relation. Mm-hmm. And I was reading about like since the 19. 19- 50 women groups have tried different approach. They started by having this dialogue between uh, Jewish and Palestinian women. And then even like within the Jewish women group, there were some women from underrepresented group who said like, this is not enough. What we're doing, like just having dialogue, you have to acknowledge like even within our own society, there's like inequality so we have to address this so they went from just having dialogue to having initiative uh, whether it's facing uh, like everyday inequality or revisiting policies or advocating for a new kind of political order is it a sense of social justice a need to acknowledge and redress the the dysfunctionality the asymmetry of power and some aspect of social justice i don't want to put words in your mouth but is that where you're going Yes, exactly. So it starts maybe with a dialogue, but it has to go beyond that. 
Let me push you a bit in terms of your context, because it's very different from the the conflict in Israel-Palestine today, as polarized as American society is. But how would you handle, I mean, Ruby mentioned the issue of language, and woke culture is is very much something that's of concern in um, some of the conservative communities. So when something like that comes in and builds up I suspect resentment in a conservative community, something that's really quite tricky. How, how do you go about handling that? What do you do when someone comes in and, and it really begins to grate? It can be simple, I think, sometimes too simple to take refuge in partisanship and sort of go, oh, well, my camp thinks this, and so I'm just going to go there instead of to sort of take the time to think about, well, where do you sit on this? And, and all of that gray and all of that nuance that's very complicated. It's not always coherent um, and it is full of contradictions, but to sort of accept and maybe lean into the fact that, you know, even some of our virtues are contradictory (laughs) and they're not easy to figure out. And so I think that that's something that people should work on generally. And it's something that I saw in my field work as being something that folks at the church that I was studying are trying to sort of coax each other to do. I think like what you said about working on the self, can you like talk more about that and like what motivates one to work on the self because this is relates back to the indifference like why would you go and seek knowledge or like want to learn about the other what motivates you in the context and the people you worked with for the people i worked with there was of course a range of motivations that people had i think one was similar to something that that you were touching on earlier which is the idea that there are issues that need to be redressed and there's a kind of uh, a need to correct the record or to correct the way that things have been carried out in the past to see that there are things that they need to change about themselves and the way that they understand it can become as in-depth and thick as what is biblical knowledge how do they know um, what god wants them to do and those kinds of very sort of high level theological types of questions all the way down to just how do they just cultivate virtues of daily living that represent what they think their faith should lead them to do and to be. Um, and they have to redress the ways in which they've lived for a really long time in which that hasn't necessarily been the case. They kind of look at themselves and at the, their past selves in a way in which they recognize it, but they no longer uh, really like who they used to be, I think, in public especially, and in, in sense of interacting with others. And so they want to change that. And, and that's something that, that they're working very hard to do. Sam, is there a sense of it being an internal conversation? In other words, sometimes the dialogue is more complicated, you know, when uh, there's a group of Muslims speaking to one another about the other or a group of Jews within the Jewish world speaking about others. And I suspect also in, uh, in your work, when a group of conservative evangelical Christians are reflecting on the other, whoever the other is, that that can be in some ways a harder conversation than when they're sitting down uh, eating with the local Muslim community. Absolutely. I think that the the tensions within the church <laughs> were perhaps uh, stronger than some of the ones that were between who their imagined other was um, at any given time. And I think that that all takes place within the context of they're trying to stay together as a community. And especially in a context of, you know, churches are sort of break and schism and splinter all the time. It's a, it's a, It's been a sort of a characteristic of American Protestantism, for sure, um, and elsewhere. Uh, and they were sort of really trying to fight back against that. The value of staying together as a community as they dealt with these issues was something that was also a really important thing and also a competing one, I think, because people could go their own directions and 
take things a certain way, but that might mean that they would have to leave their church because maybe they wouldn't get the 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 moral and spiritual or financial support in some sense if they want to do a new ministry or something like that. Um, and so people will kind of find themselves really complicatedly bound up in these different ambitions of trying to understand or, or love the other in particular ways and then trying to keep their own community together in the process, which is something that I witnessed to be something that was extremely difficult to do for them. Can we apply an, an example? I mean, if I'm thinking of Christian Zionists who are quite numerous in that part of the world, right? See in the concept of Jews living in, in Israel and returning to Israel as part of the sort of fulfillment of Christian theology. And, and what role does Christian Zionism play in a Christian Muslim conversation in Tennessee? I saw people really wanting to embrace the... Jewishness of Jesus, for example, was something that was really important for people. So less in a political sense of there was still a connection. Of, for example, people from the church still go on sort of re- there's a yearly trip to Israel that people go on. Um, I picked up on general support for the state of Israel and geopolitical matters and things like that. It's more theological in a way than political in terms of the Jewishness of Jesus. And I suppose, Ruby, thinking how that might apply in your work uh, theologically, I'm thinking about the similarity between Islam and Judaism theologically, which in some ways are closer than perhaps the Jewish and Muslim encounter with Christianity. Yeah, I think I saw that even to start with, even within the same like Jewish group or Palestinian group, they're very diverse religionally. So we could find some Jewish woman from the left or something could be very close to certain Muslim women from Palestine. It's more about not only their religion, but how different economic, political and social uh, background of the women play, which sometimes also we can see in the partnership how in a lot of talks they always talk about how they're close how they share a lot of belief and system and this is one way a lot of peace building approaches try to bring the two groups together so in a way what crosses the boundaries are the same sort of outlooks whether they're sort of more politically on the left or the right whether they're more religious or observant they share that in common than they do necessarily with their co-religionists of a different ideological vantage point. So it's also very important to acknowledge that when we're saying like Jewish or Muslim, it's not like one group. It's a very diverse with a lot of power dynamic that impact their relation. And there we must leave it. Thanks to my guests, Sam Victor and Ruby Hajanayef. And thanks to you two for listening. You might want to browse the Naked Reflections archive where you can find those shows I mentioned about gender and sex and much, much else. And do check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists.